Let's pray. Father, Lord, without you, we can do nothing. And so even preaching, standing here, Father, I, I, after all these years, I'm still terrified. And Lord Jesus, to speak on your behalf, may these folks see you today and not, not me. May they hear from your word. May the Holy Spirit teach, Lord Jesus, us today, Father, as we look at your word. And Father, may you be glorified in it. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 5 is where we're at. Let's head there. We're going to be in the first nine verses of that chapter. This is part one, as you can see. I'm going to break it up. So if you're visiting here today, welcome. If you've been here a long time, welcome. I want you to feel home. What are we? Everybody's giddy today. That's this. All right, John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well or do you want to be made whole? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. That's as far as we'll go today because there's a lot more to be said there. But you'll notice in verse 2 there, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. This was a fairly good-sized place where a lot of people would gather. You'll see there in verse 3, a great multitude was there who were sick. And So John refers, in as we kind of break our way into chapter 5 here, he refers to a feast of the Jews. Now that's mentioned six times in the Gospel of John. Chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 6, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 2, chapter 10, uh, verse 22, and chapter 11, verse 55. But this is the only one that uh, failed to identify specifically what feast it was. Okay, All the other ones tell you what feast it is. Okay, So I don't know why, that's just the way God put it together. So since Jesus went up to Jerusalem for this feast, it's likely it was one of the three major feasts that were held in that city, Passover, one of the three, uh, Feast of Tabernacles and Feast of, Pe- of Weeks or Feast of Pentecost. Those are the three major, and you can find those. I mean, uh, they're told, if we go back here to Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 16. I don't know that we need to go through all these, but we can. So 16, 16, say, three times a year all... Your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So three times a year, it's commanded those feasts they have to be at, okay, every 
male has to come. Okay, we can see that in Exodus 23 or in Exodus 34 also. But the pool here is situated near the northeast corner of the old city, and it's close to the sheep gate. So if we went to Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah 3 and verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung, door, hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of a hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hanel. And then, so this gate sits in between those two towers. Now, what's significant about the sheep gate? Why would you bring up, just keep that in the back of your mind. Why is this taking place there? We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But it's also brought up in Nehemiah chapter 12, that sheep gate is brought up again. Okay, it's interesting that this location is where Jesus heals this man who could do nothing for himself. He can't heal himself. He can't walk. Uh, after Jesus Christ was announced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, again, it's interesting that that's at the sheep gate. Okay, and that was back in John 1.29. Now, just a note here, uh, the sheep gate, well, I might as well tell you, the sheep gate is where, what comes to the ga that gate? She, the sacrificial sheep and the sheep come in to the city to be used in the temple for sacrifice. What a place for this to happen. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is going to perform this miracle. Now, among those gathered at the pool hoping for a miracle was a man who had been ill for, the text says, 38 years. Think about that. Uh, the exact nature of his illness is not given to us. We don't know. It just says he's a paralytic. The Bible says that the man had an infirmity. This uh, word means that he had some kind of weakness or frailness that prevented him from walking about as other men. So he was either paralyzed or too weak to move freely on his own, having been incurably ill for nearly four decades. Could you imagine that? That's a long time to be going down to that pool if, if, if it was all that time that he was doing that. And nothing happening. So here he is. Jesus shows up with compassion to display his mighty power. And notice there in verse 6. Notice in 6 when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there in that condition a long time. So this isn't a surprise for Jesus, okay? He knows, of course, he, he's omniscient in his knowledge. But even then, if... if we even looked at his human side of things. He knew this man was there. Okay. But I think it's even more than that. He knew for a long time. Because Jesus purposely came for a specific purpose, didn't he come? What's he coming for? What did he come for? Salvation of man? To seek and save those who were what? Lost. So this man is on his radar probably from the foundation of the world, would be my guess. Okay? He knew. Now remember, there's a multitude of people there, and Jesus is coming for one man. Think about that. How many, how many people were there waiting to get healed? And it doesn't say Jesus healed all of them. It doesn't say he healed others there. We just see he took care of one man. He purposely went there for this one man, as with the woman in Samaria at the well. He didn't just go there because he was thirsty. He went there to do the Father's will. And this man here is 
the part of the Father's will who wants to save him. Okay, so notice in the, the question that the Lord brings forth in verse 6. Do you want to be made well? That's what the New King James says. Your Bible might say whole. Do you want to be made well? Now, could, could anyone doubt that this, this sick man wanted to be healed? I mean, after 38 years, I want to be healed. How many times have I tried to get to the pool when there was a stirring and nothing happened? Or other people went in before me. And it only gets to heal the, old, the first one that gets in the pool. Now, when you see a multitude of people there, boy, can you imagine the rush to the water? If there was any even inclination that the water was moving, wind could do that. And you get in the pool and nothing happens. It wasn't necessarily a stirring. But this man had returned again and again to get into the water in hope of a cure. Now, probably he was carried there by family or friends. He certainly, or I don't know, or maybe he slept there sometimes. But he had no ability to walk across town to get to this pool. So imagine the, the people it took to, to constantly carry him every day to the pool. There's a lot invested here, right, for the cure of this man. And here's the thing. He never got cured, no matter what he tried. But our Lord asked this question first. Really, did, I thought about this this week. Why would he ask that question? He already knows the answer, doesn't he? Okay, but he asked this question, and I think it's a lot like Peter and John when they're going up to the, into the gate, the, the, and he says, do you want to be made well? And he says, look at me. I, I just think that what's happening here is, is the Lord asking the question first to fasten attention upon himself. I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I am here. Then to deepen in him a feeling of entire helplessness, all right? To make him say, I can't be helped. I've tried this for 38 years and nothing has worked. To get to the end of himself so that the only one left that could help him is Jesus Christ. Now, so think about that, you know. So uh, what a picture, when I, I'm thinking about that, what a picture of the sinner who, has, who is lost, who is, who is separated from God by his sins. He can do nothing by himself to make himself well. Go to Isaiah 59. You know the first two verses in that, in that book. There are some things that separate us from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. And if you're here today and, and you don't know the Lord as your Savior, this, these, this scriptures would be talking to you. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. In other words, can, can God save? Absolutely. But... It cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, does God hear prayer? Think about that. He says here he won't hear. What's he looking for before? What does he want to hear? Repentance. An acknowledgement, maybe. I'm a sinner, Lord Jesus. I need a Savior. You're a holy God. You're a righteous God. Lord, I am in need. I'm broken. I'm in need. There's nowhere else to go. I need you. I believe that you died for me. He needs that. He wants that. That's when he'll begin to hear when the person is repentant. Because why? Their sins have separated them from who? Himself. And so Romans, Romans 3.23, you know the, the, the verse there in Romans? For all have what? And what? Fall short of the glory of God. 
everybody sinned, and we, we, in our sin, even in our righteous acts that we think we can do to get to heaven, we don't make it. So we need help. So regardless of what he tries, the sinner is still lost, unable to walk in the ways of the Lord. So let's go look at Ephesians chapter 2. You've read these verses many, many times in your study. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Notice it is he who made you alive. All right? Amen? You didn't make yourself alive. He made yourself alive. So he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You were under the influence and directed by Satan, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's where we were. We were headed for the wrath of God. Until he did what? He pulled us out of that and saved us. Praise Jesus. And so here's many lost people feel that their lives are going along very well and they're in need of nothing or they are looking to something else to make them well or to get them to heaven. Here this man is looking for what to make him well? The water to make him well. He doesn't even realize that the one who can make him well is standing right there with him. And not just the one, the only one who can make him well. So just like that, the, sadly, the lost sinner is, more, is in more trouble than he could ever believe. If you look at this man as just a, like a sinner looking for a way to get to heaven or, or a, a way to have his sin taken care of, folks, that water stirring up is not going to do it. Now, that water stirring up possibly heal the person physically that was what god was doing with that but that water stirring up is not going to make him well spiritually only christ can do that now to live your life without god is one thing after all uh, you never really miss something you never had but to die without a relationship with god is a terrible thing if you look at the book of hebrews in chapter 10 31 that verse says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Be glad he saved you. Be glad you have a relationship with Christ. There is only one destination for the lost sinner, and that's hell. And that's where that man and everybody in that multitude is going to go unless Jesus Christ saves them. That's where everybody in this congregation would be headed if Christ didn't save you. This man's a desperate man. Imagine him dragging his broken body toward that pool every time somebody yelled, hey, the water's moving. Now, in a multitude that's there, it's not guaranteed that you're right next to the pool, the edge of the pool. There's probably people that aren't paralyzed or, or that are able to walk that have some other infirmity that could get there a lot faster. So this man's in a hopeless state. The possibility that Jesus might heal him, probably never even entered his mind. He didn't even know who Jesus was. If we get down to in our text here, which we will next week, look at verse 13. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. He didn't know who healed him. He doesn't even know who's standing next to him. 
So I, I believe his only concern was finding a way to be the first one into the pool when the water began to stir. Now, maybe he thought that Jesus could help him in a, by carrying him to the water when, it was, when the time was right. But I don't think he sees him yet as the Messiah. He doesn't see him as the one who can heal him. And so, as an application, it's really sad that there are a few people who are desperate about their spiritual, spiritual condition. He was desperate about his physical condition, but he did not know that he was spiritually in trouble. And as this man is about to find out, okay, you know, many live their lives as if they will go on indefinitely. This life is simply a time of preparation. One day it will be end, and then it will be too late to do anything about your lost condition. So don't be guilty of presuming on tomorrow. You know, that tomorrow may never come. Time may just run out on you. If you look at Proverbs 27, verse 1, we read this. I love the sound of Bibles moving. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. When I look at this whole miracle that's taking place here, I see a man who can try many things to bring peace and salvation to the soul. He can try works. He can try religion. He can try being good. He can try giving. He can try praying and so on. But none of these things will ever be able to save the soul of a man. It takes the blood of Jesus to accomplish this. And I'm taking that because I'm watching this man. If I just could get to the water, then everything will be made well. You know, I say, but you can't get there, folks, unless it's Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Go there to 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Let me start in 17, actually. <clears throat> and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. If he would only known that the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was standing there ready to uh, deliver him from his infirmity, well, that would have been some a neat thing. And maybe he later figures that out. But whatever you may decide to try outside of Jesus, you will be sadly disappoint, disappointed. This this man was surrounded by others who were in the same shape as himself. They offered him no comfort and they offered him no help. Nobody had an answer. Everybody, that multitude of people at the at these these five porches of the, the, the pool of Bethesda, they couldn't help him. And he couldn't help them. These sad people picture really the sinner in, in all his helplessness and all his brokenness, his blindness and his uselessness before the Lord. Again, back in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. You want to head back there or just wait and I'll read it either way? Ephesians 2, 12. What does that say? Let's start in 11. Therefore, remember that you once... You once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, can you imagine being in that place where you're looking for hope and you're looking for, uh, you know, some sort of, of promise and, and there's nothing there for you because you don't know the Lord? There's a lot of people that were probably there that didn't have a relationship with him. Multitudes and multitudes of people. Now he's surrounded by others who are in the same boat. Others who are just as lost as he is and just as sick as he is. And others who can no more help him than he can help them. So that's often sinners will surround themselves with others who are just as bad as them. I, I used to do that. Hang around the people that are just like you. Or who are worse than you, that they, they themselves, you know, worse than they are. This is a vain attempt to justify their condition. And that's, that's what a sinner would do. He would hang around sick people, right? Spiritually sick. You were there once. You did that. And say, oh, I don't remember that. Well, that's where you would hang out. You wouldn't hang out with godly people. Why? They didn't, I, I didn't want to do that. Now, there's something to be seen here in our text. This is a hard place to preach from, I'm telling you. Because you sit there and go, okay, well, Lord, what do you want to say with all this? All right? Jesus here, there's some things about Jesus I want you to see. He is a sympathetic Messiah, sympathetic Lord. Jesus is pictured here as a compassionate Savior. He is shown doing three great works that prove this. And I was thinking, and I, these are my thoughts. He is showing choosing the sinner. Now, they're all sinners there. Don't miss, but he, he, let's just use this guy. He chooses the sinner. According to the, the Bible's own witness, there was a great multitude there, as I said in chapter 5, verse 3 there. Jesus could have gone to any person in that place, yet for his own reasons, he went to this man. Now, this is nothing but pure grace here. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking for the water. This is pure grace by the Lord. The Lord wants to save this man. Wants to heal him physically and he wants to heal him spiritually. So this is, this, this grace is all over this. Now what a picture Jesus has, or a picture of Jesus in his work of salvation. He reaches out to us in love and he calls us to himself. We can go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verse 3. Now, in our men's uh, Bible study, we, we went over this a while ago. But Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3 says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting, <coughs> excuse me, an everlasting love. Of course, he's talking to Israel here, the people, the Jews. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. So that's no different than the, for this man, right? Why is Jesus there? Well, he's a sympathetic Savior. But he's there because he's loved this man from all eternity. This man didn't know that. There's actually somebody that has loved you before the foundation of this world? Is that, is that even possible? That God set his sights on you before you were ever even thought of by your parents? Or is, Do we have that kind of God? Yes, we do. And, and so what motivated him, if you look at Jeremiah here, he says in verse 3, 
the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So he, always, he did love this man. He will always love this man. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. What is it that caused Jesus, God, to draw this man to salvation? Why is he there? He personally loves him. No, that doesn't mean he doesn't love everybody else in the multitude. No, but at this specific time, this man was supposed to be saved. And so what happens here? We, see, we go, when the sinner responds in faith, he still has to do that. If you look at Romans 10, 9 and 10, there has to be a response from this guy, right, to be saved. Jesus comes in and works the work of salvation in our hearts and in our lives. Romans 10, 13 tells us that. Go there to Romans chapter 10. And what, what, does, it, what does it say in Romans 10, 13? It says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will what? Be saved. Is that a promise that's sure and true? Absolutely it is. So this is a work of grace and grace alone. After all, we have done nothing to deserve his love. This man didn't do anything special that would say, well, I have to love him. No, that's all by the grace of God. We have done nothing during our salvation. We have done nothing to even make God notice us, yet he chooses to love us just because he wants to. Now, if you're the recipient of that love and you have a relationship with him, that should put you on your knees with total gratitude. Lord, you saved me. I don't deserve to be saved. I praise the Lord for the, for the day when he made himself known to me. He could have passed by me. He could have left me bound for hell, but he didn't. Thank God he stopped where I was, helpless and broken by sin, and he reached out to me. All I had to do was say yes to that. Praise God, I did. I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't be here at all. I know what my life was like, and I know where I was headed if I kept up that behavior. Now, the first thing I said is he's, he's shown, he is shown choosing the sinner. The second thing, he is showing caring for the sinner. Okay? Jesus knew everything there was to know about this man. He knew that he was crippled, that he was unable to walk, that he was unable to stand and carry his own bed. Jesus knew that this man was totally dependent on others, yet Jesus reached out to him anyway. And what a, again, here it is, what a picture of grace. You know, by the way, after all, Beth Bethesda means what? House of grace. Now that's interesting. That's the definition of Bethesda. What's going to happen at the sheep gate, the gate called Bethesda, which means the house of grace? What do you think God's going to pour out in that specific place? The grace of God. On people who are undeserving of his grace, who aren't looking for grace, maybe don't even know what grace is. And here they He's pouring it out on them. Jesus knows all about the condition of the sinner. Note, he was sick of natural means, all right? And there is the thought there that when you would look at people that were lame, because they went from, you know, the Ten Commandments, the first commandment there, people would look at somebody lame as maybe what? They're in sin, okay? Or their parents sinned. Remember, if you... When he's talking about idolatry there in, in Exodus 20, verse 1, if you do this, God would take it as hating him, and I will visit because you hate me, because you have idols in your life, 
instead of me, I will visit these things on you to the third and fourth generation of your family. So they would look at this and say, oh, that guy's crippled. His grandparents or great-grandparents, they sin. Or if you look at John 11, verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, for, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There's that possibility too. Why is this guy lame? Was he born lame because of the, his family's sin? Was he made lame so that Jesus could be glorified in this situation? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us here specifically why he's lame, but Jesus knows all about the condition of this man. And he knows all about the condition of us as sinners who are in need of a Savior. He knows, but look at this. Jesus refuses to, to look at a man as the man as a cripple. He, he really would rather see this man, what am I trying to say? That he refuses to look at, at man as he is, okay? He chooses rather to see him as what he can become. He saw something in you. He sees something in me. He, he knows the outcome. He is, even when we are sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? Romans 5.8. So isn't that an incredible thought that Jesus knows every sin, every act of rebellion we've ever had, every evil thought that we've ever thought or committed, and every evil thing we have ever done, that he knows we will fail over and over again as the years go by, and yet he still loves you. How many times have you failed Jesus this week, this past week, since last Sunday? A lot. Thank you. All right? I'm, I'm, I'm the chief. I fail him constantly. All right? Certainly, there may be things I don't even know that I'm doing wrong, but he still loves me. By his grace, he still loves me. Glory to God. What, you know, what a testimony of the amazing grace of the Almighty God. So I'm so glad that he loves the sinner. He loves the sinner. So number three there, he is showing coming to the sinner. So he is he's choosing the sinner. He's caring for the sinner. He comes to the sinner. And that don't necessarily have to be in that order. But Jesus literally comes to where this poor man is lying, and he reaches out to him in genuine grace and love. Now take note, it isn't until he actually comes to us that we have the opportunity for salvation. Every one of us was visited by who? By him. I wasn't looking for him, but he was looking for me. I thought my wife was doing well. I was... Boy, this is great. Life is good. Till I realized I didn't have a Savior. And he made that known to me. And so there are three ways in which Jesus comes to the sinner. First, he, he came as a sacrifice. Right? We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. All right? What does that verse say? You, you all know it by heart, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For... He made him who knew no, no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Second thing is he came as the Savior. Right? This is how he visits the sinner. He comes as a sacrifice. He comes as the Savior. We go back to John chapter 6, 
We're not there yet, but it'd be in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. He, he comes as a sacrifice. He comes as a savior. But he will eventually come as the judge to the sinner. And woe to the sinner that isn't found in Christ when he comes to judge. So take the opportunity, I guess, that God gives you and run to him for salvation. If the Lord shows up in your life and he is drawing you to himself, respond. Don't push it off. Don't say, well, I'll do that someday. If you're in the hearing of the gospel, God has put you in the place to hear that word. He is wanting you to respond by faith to that message. If you don't do it, folks, where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? The, you're not laying by water that someday could heal you. Where are you going to go to be healed if it's not Christ? So Jesus asked the man if he would like to be made well. Now this man is guilty of the same thing that so many others are guilty of. He is confusing the physical with the spiritual. Jesus came to offer him physical healing from a spiritual source. What do you think God is more concerned about? This man walks again? Or that he's in glory. Yeah. But to show that he is the one and only one who can do this, what's he ready to do? Heal him physically also. Remember, these signs are to verify the message and the messenger. It's not simply to heal for healing's sake. It's to bring glory to Jesus. It's to cause, as the Gospel of John is, it's caused, used to bring people to salvation. That's the whole message of the Gospel of John. Jesus will save you if you come to him. So even today, Jesus comes to the lost sinner and he makes an offer of salvation. The problem is that sinners are looking for a physical solution in our world. They're not looking for a solution to a spiritual problem. I bet you if you asked people, took a survey, what's wrong with this country? What's wrong with the world we live in? They would identify some kind of physical problem. Well, it's him, it's her, it's them. It's not me. I'm not the problem. You are the problem if you're not born again. Hello? Am I looking into deer in the headlights here? What's the problem with our culture, folks? It's spiritual. Physical Things will follow spiritual things. It's a spiritual problem. We in this country, we, well, because, you know, when Daniel prayed for Judah in, when they were under Babylonian captivity, he said it's our sin. Okay? It's our sin. What have we done with God? What have we done with his anointed one, Psalm 2. What have we been trying to do forever in this culture is to get rid of both of them. The problem is spiritual. We don't see ourselves as needing salvation from Jesus. That's the culture. I can save myself. It started in Babylon. It's where all your cults and everything have been birthed from. It's Babylon in the book of Genesis where it was, we don't need you. We don't need you. We don't need God. We can get there ourselves. I'll even build a tower to show that, God, you can't stop us from getting as high as you are. 
That's the whole thing that's going on, is we don't need to be healed. We don't need him. But folks, <laughs> we do. If Jesus is calling you to come to him, then don't tarry. But obey and come to the Lord for salvation. Now, notice again, Jesus tells this man to do what? What does he tell him to do? Get up and walk. Get up and walk. He just told this man to do something that he hasn't been able to do for 38 years. How many times has this man probably tried to walk on his own effort? He maybe never have walked. This is pretty incredible command for, for Jesus. Yet all that was required of this man was simple. What did he have to do? Obey him. Get up and walk. Well, I, was God looking for I can't? What was he looking for? An act of faith from this man? Grace has visited him, and now what's required? Faith. Boy, those go together, don't they, in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. So when he, this man responded to Jesus, his command by faith, he was immediately healed, and he was able to get up and walk. Now this miracle required, it required from this crippled man nothing except to... Believe the Lord Jesus Christ and stand up and walk. Now, salvation works the same way. Jesus comes to the sinner and calls him to salvation. And all that's required of the sinner is humble obedience to the call of Jesus. It may not be to get up and walk, but to get up and follow him. Follow me. So when this obedience comes, the sinner is immediately and instantly made right with Christ. And where would we see that in the scripture? We went to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Well, let's back up here to 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted or you believed or had faith in, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What happened when you got saved? When you believed the gospel, you got saved, right? Then what did he do? He sealed you with the Holy Spirit of what? Why does he use the word promise there? That's interesting. Why did he say by the Holy Spirit? Why throw in promise there? Because what did he seal inside of you when he sealed you? What is in you? Not just salvation, but every promise God ever made is all bound up in that sealing for you. Praise God you responded to the call of grace. Amen? We'll look at the rest of this next week. Father, thank you for your word here father i really see lord jesus a gracious compassionate lord who is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world what a place to do this miracle the very place that's called the house of grace father thank you for being gracious to us thank you for our salvation if there's anyone here that does not know you as their lord and savior May this be the day that they respond, Father, to your call. Lord, you are a wonderful, wonderful God. Thank you for bringing all these folks here today. 
Lord, be with those who are watching at home. Lord, thank you for being our Savior. Amen.